It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome, listeners, to the Two Jacks, where we discuss all matters Australian and move around the world to discuss all matters global. And joining me. As usual, is Hong Kong Jack all the way in Hong Kong. How are you, mate? G'day. G'day. Um, public holiday yesterday for May Day, of course, but, uh, you know, we, we like a public holiday here. You do indeed. I wouldn't have thought May Day would be observed in Hong Kong, but it is. Now, uh, now on. Yes. Not observed as, as it used to be. There used to be sort of marches and things like that from the trade union groups, but they're deciding not to do it now. So just a public holiday, just an opportunity to get on the booze on a Sunday Sunday night or a Monday, yeah, it's on a Sunday night so you can have a, a big lie in on the Monday. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a start of what, what's called Golden Week in China as well. So um, uh, that's when you know, half the country has a week off. So a lot of uh, tourists, mainland tourists here. Which uh, which half? <laughs> which half um, China uh, get it off? Well, it's people in certain kinds of jobs. Well, do keep going. Professional yeah, yeah. people in government employment, that sort of stuff, particularly get it. Okay. Professional services get this one up. So. All right. Well, a week of holidays, not for all in Hong Kong, but uh, you'll be seeing a uh, a number of uh, people travelling across across the border in, under the islands. There. Yeah, we're about halfway down from the peak to uh, to central, um, and I, I saw a um, a tour leader holding a stick. And I think she had about 120 people following her down our street. You could sort of meander your way through mid levels down to uh, down to central past our place. So. Did they stop and uh, demand to see your presence? No, no, they didn't. They just, uh, but you could tell they were. You can always just dress and all that sort of stuff. You can tell they're mainlanders. Okay, there you go. All right, books and covers, Jack. Judging books and covers. Uh, it is just seven more sleeps until uh, Jim Chalmers hands down his first official budget. There was a, uh, there was a, a there've been a number of economic statements passed down since they were elected, but this is the big one, Jack. And uh, Chalmers has uh, uh, sort of announced in advance that the job seeker payments solely for Australians over fifty five will be increased and of course that's that's drawn a great deal of criticism for younger job job seekers we don't know how much that payment will be how much uh, the increase will be for the 55 plus job seekers um, uh, but it will be increased for older recipients about two hundred and twenty seven thousand of them Jack mm. uh, what's the sense in it what's the sense in this first uh, why are they doing it yeah um, uh, because they can't afford to do it for everybody. Um, I, yes, I think that's about right. And they want to make that plain. They just can't afford to do it for everybody. Um, uh, and I think Chalmers has made that argument. But, I, but you know, the Twitter sphere is un, deeply unhappy, Jack, because uh, the younger folk there on JobSeeker aren't going to get a brass razoo by the sounds of things. Yeah, and I suspect the, the reasoning behind it is that 
Um, it's very hard for people to find a job at 55, so they're likely to become more or less permanently on job seeker. Whereas the younger people, into in, in, in the particularly in the current job market, um, uh, are much more likely to be able to find work. I tell you what bothers me about this, and it's not a, a question of the philosophical principles of uh, demographics and job seeker rises. It's more this idea of, of of drip feeding out the budget before it's actually actually released. I remember the 2013-14 budget handed down by Joe Hockey, in which he managed to do the near impossible, uh, and that was offend virtually every every uh, every age group, every gender group, uh, everyone from old age pensioners to job seeker uh, people, uh, by releasing a bunch of information or a lot of sort of question mark stuff, uh, much of it which didn't eventuate. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, it set virtually everyone offside. Yeah, um, I look back with pleasure on the days where the budget, uh, the morning after the budget, the paper said beer cigs up. Um, uh, these days, the papers um, are full of, um, did you win or lose? You know, what benefits in it were, were for you? And that's sort of a, a cargo cult mentality we have with the federal government now that the federal government's role um, is to be the benevolent uncle and hand us stuff. Ah, yes, the old uh, will one Australian be disadvantaged, um, mm. you know, that sort of nonsense. Yeah. Um, look, there are budgetary pressures that uh, uh, Jim Chalmers has. I mean, fiscal policy is almost... Um, uh, incapable of dealing with uh, some of the economic pressures, particularly around inflation at the moment. Um, you can really only overheat it uh, by spending. Um, but uh, I think uh, this particular this particular plan, raising job seeker for the over 55s, uh, my view is you either do it or you don't, and um, uh, and, and forget about uh, forget about age groups. Yeah, I think that's probably right, but I can see the I can see their argument for doing it this way. But I, I, I'm not sure I agree with the argument, but I can certainly see it. Yeah. Okay. Now moving on to the voice, Jack. The select committee um, uh, was uh, gifted the presence of a number of significant individuals, and the last man off the on the roster was uh, none other than Tony Abbott. And I'd suggest uh, to you as a principal, Jack, anything that Tony Abbott says is a bad idea is probably a good one. Yeah, well, um, I, I, I think that the days when Tony Abbott was an influential political figure died the day he couldn't hold um, uh, his own seat um, uh, in, in a federal election. So. He seems to have forgotten about that, hasn't he? Mm. He seems to have cast that into the... Uh, into the decent recesses of his memory. And Noel Pearson also made an interesting comment that if the no vote got up, uh, reconciliation would be, in fact, dead forever. Bold stuff, I suppose. Um, uh, YouGov poll released over the weekend, I think, for the news, uh, for the nine, uh, nine uh, organisation, Jack, uh, 51, 34 and 15. That's 51 yes, 34 no, 15 don't know. And they didn't uh, allocate the don't knows. But as a general principle, uh, you would say the don't knows, the majority of which would be headed towards the no vote, wouldn't you, Jack? Um, yeah, I would think that's probably right. Yes. Yeah, but even if we say if we 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 whip it, we whip 
one third of the of the no vote and into the yes camp, it does look reasonably promising. I think a lot of this polling depends on um, methodology, depends on the way it's taken, depends on the questions asked. But as it stands, uh, the yes proposition leads in all states. Um, uh, does not have the majority in Queensland or Western Australia yet, just 47 in Queensland, I think WA 48, um, <clears throat> 52 in uh, Northern Territory um, with 32% no, um, 53 and 52 in New South Wales and Victoria, Jack. Those are fairly low figures for mine in those two, those two states, the two major states, two most populous states. Uh, yeah, uh, it, what does it actually need? It needs um, uh, a majority of the electors voting, uh, the yeah. Constitution says. And, and it must win four states, you know, four states. territories. Yeah. Where I think, my, my view of it hasn't changed, that I, that I think it's only about a 40% chance of succeeding. In fact, I think it'll fail. Um, and that's because um, on the polling numbers, I think we are at the, do you support Indigenous recognition in the Constitution stage of the of the public's deliberations? Um, uh, and one thing the Select Committee showed us that even on the yes proponents, there are two quite distinct um, interpretations of what the current proposal means. One I call the Megan Davis line, that's Professor Megan Davis, uh, and the other one I call the Anne Toomey line. And the Megan Davis line is that that the voice can speak to almost anybody in government um, and, and that the government's going to have to listen. Um, the Antumi line is that's not the case at all um, and she's supported by the uh, Solicitor General and all that sort of stuff. Now, ultimately, the High Court will determine which of those interpretations is correct um, and I think the, the uncertainty about what the High Court will do with that um, is likely to lead the, the voice to fail. Um. Yeah. Okay. I, we we obviously disagree about this, and just on that basic uh, the basic question of whether the yes vote will get up, I think there's much to be played out in terms of appealing to the sentiment of, of Australians. I don't think too many people are going to be wondering uh, about constitutional arguments as they enter the polling booths, um, <coughs> which are contentious and contended um, by uh, various players. Um, but the overwhelming majority of, of Australia's jurists, significant jurists, seem to suggest that this offers nothing in, partic nothing in particular that is uh, gravely going to affect uh, how our government operates. I did notice Frank Brennan uh, yesterday um, uh, addressing, addressing the committee, uh, saying that he wishes that uh, the executive be removed uh, from um, uh, that 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 the uh, the voice itself would not be able to speak uh, and make recommendations to the executive. I find that odd. I really uh, do. No, precisely what he said was he wants the word executive replaced with ministers of state. That's right. That's right. I, 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 and, and look, that might make some sense. It's, you're absolutely right about that. He didn't say just remove the executive and be done with it. Um, uh, the business of policy in Australia is not generated by the parliament for the most part. The business of government uh, and what legislation and what actions governments take uh, 
uh, often with parliamentary approval, more often than not with parliamentary approval, generate at in the minister's doors, generate within the cabinet. And so I, I think this idea that we cut the executive out, that the uh, that the voice not be able to uh, advise the executive is it, it, really just we, we would really be deeping, uh, uh, dipping deeply into the symbolic there. Well, um, well, what he's saying is it would go to cabinet when when, when it was a minister of state. Now, that that would give the voice the right to um, uh, to make submissions to cabinet to a minister of state. Um, but what it wouldn't do was allow the voice. It wouldn't give the voice as of right representation to individual public servants, um, statutory authorities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. So would that be something? Would that be a model you would support? Um, I, I haven't come to a, a fixed view about it. I mean, I'm still looking at the process. I mean, I, the process is wrong in my view. They've spent six years talking to five percent of the population and six weeks talking to ninety-five percent of the population. And I think still that's a long just way wrong. To go. They, they, they need to slow down and bring people on board with whatever it is they're arguing. We've still got a long way to go. I mean, the the uh, legislation required to establish a, a referendum, I believe the Constitution dictates that uh, once a referendum uh, question is put and passes through the Parliament, then we have 60 days from that point on. So that legislation hasn't even entered the Parliament yet. Um Yes, well, well, it has. Um, it's just it's just sitting on the floor while the uh, floor of the house while the uh, the select committee. Well, it hasn't been voted on. Hasn't yeah, been yeah voted that's on. right. And um, and and when it, it is, and will... it's got it's got to be put within not less than two nor more than six months. Is the is the is the constitutional rule? Um, right. But but um, yeah, at the at the moment, I I just don't think it will succeed. All right, polling says otherwise, but there is a big don't know factor there. And if if the majority of those don't knows, if this poll is correct, that is, uh, vote yes, then uh, uh, vote no instead of uh, yes, then we are looking at a very narrow victory on that polling. Just on that polling alone, we are looking at a very narrow victory uh, with. Uh, uh, the possibility of uh, you know, Queensland and Western Australia failing, but um, I believe all other states would pass. Get it, getting the four up. Um, I also think that uh, that the at the moment the government seems to be adopting a take it or leave it. This is the uh, this is the option. Uh, we're not really interested in changing it, um, and a lot of the yes proponents have the same view. And I think if you put, if you run that line, people are going to say, okay, we'll leave it. Yeah, well, that might be the mentality, but um, but what what is driving the government? What is driving Albanese's position? What is driving Bernie's position? Is the undertakings that they've made to the indigenous to indigenous Australians, and I think yeah, it would I, be I a fair betrayal if they if they changed their minds on that. I certainly understand that's their political difficulty, if you like. But this has got to have support from a wide range of people. The, the constitution belongs to all of us. Um, uh, and um, you're not going to get it up by arguing on, on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. Uh, the argument is that we should be grateful that anyone's made us an offer. 95% of the people are going to look at that and go, uh, no. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, look, I, I think a lot of the rulings on referenda in this country are, are in the deep unknown. A lot of the, shall we say, the established truths around referenda in this country in the deep unknown. This is the longest period we've had 
since our last referendum over 24 years um, and uh, and some of the established rules that uh, uh, where, where referenda either got up or uh, or got knocked over, and the majority of them got knocked over, are in deep historical Australia, a different Australia. Moving on, Jack, the ABC, in a little bit of turmoil, particularly around its radio broadcasting. Um, I think um, I think this, a lot of this is driven by some pretty poor ratings figures uh, in New South Wales. I'm not sure where the rest of the country is in terms yeah, of... Yeah, not city. much better elsewhere. I had a quick look at this. Uh, and, of course, that's true. Um, uh, it, it's like when you're making money. They'll, they'll, they'll forgive a lot of sins when you're making money in business. And in radio, if your ratings are through the roof, they're not going to look at how you're going about it or what you're doing so much. They're just pleased to get the ratings up. Uh, yeah. But when the ratings go down, everyone gets scrutiny. It's like when the profits go down, everyone gets scrutiny. Yeah, but I mean, look, you know, the first thing to first thing to say is that the ABC isn't ratings bound. I mean, obviously, it pays attention to them, but it it um, um, <coughs> is not, you know, it's not based on some sort of commercial uh, commercial notion of being able to sell advertising around uh, its audience numbers. I have but, to, but ask, they all know Jack, the numbers. Well, they all know the numbers. There's no doubt about that. And 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 Richard Glover who's been a perennial at the ABC on Drive um, in throughout New South Wales, uh, has had some uh, pretty poor ratings uh, in the last couple of surveys. And, and James Valentine, who was in on afternoons for a very long time, has moved to breakfast. And uh, he's uh, he's got figures around about 7 percentile, normally ABC in the low double figures at that particular time. When uh, my old mate uh, Wendy Harmer was doing it, that's where they were. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I guess I have to ask the question, Jack: Who's listening to radio these days? I mean, you get on a train in Australia, or indeed a bus, uh, and everyone's got the earphones in. But I guarantee you, there aren't a lot of people listening to radio on them. They'll be listening to their music. Sometimes they're watching television shows. They'll be listening uh, and- to us. And listening to podcasts, of course, mm. the democratization of radio, Jack. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure that. I mean, look, you know, you, you, you threw this in as a topic for us. James Madden, who's the uh, who's uh, the boss of uh, media at the Australian, uh, has said that one factor being considered by the nine-person advisory group, which is uh, reviewing uh, in the ABC what's going on, is the failure to recruit fresh talent from outside the taxpayer-funded giant, which has left its airwaves dominated by ABC lifers, according to a well-placed source. I, I get the argument, but if you look at commercial radio, you, you find the same thing. I mean, Ray Hadley was Ray Hadley's been on radio for for uh, a million years. Uh, Alan Jones recently retired in deep into his eighties, um, and uh, you know, there's very little fresh blood coming through in commercial radio as well. The highest highest rating breakfast show in the country um, uh, is run by uh, an old mate of mine, uh, and he's been doing it since the eighties. But he has gone through. Uh, I think he's on his third co-host now, um, uh, Ross Campbell, as I knew. Ross oh, that's Stevenson. in Melbourne. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I was wondering where you're going there. Oh, ben, um, ben Fordham's relatively young um, mm. and uh, good bloke, Ben, by the way. Uh, I, I know him quite well. And uh, um, he's going very well in his survey. Started slowly because 
of the Jones factor, I suppose. But I'm just not sure about rating surveys, Jack, and, and the methodology there. Uh, it shows that a lot, in the end, what you're looking at, the ratings are, are, are talking about literally tens of thousands of people rather than millions. Yeah, um, you still want to be in the still want to have a high percentage rather than a low percentage. Look, I think James Madden makes some fair point fair points that so much of ABC content sounds the same. There's not enough diversity of views um, uh, within it. So, um, what does that lead to? It leads to dull um, media, and dull media is a turnoff. Look, I uh, I got a number of mates uh, in the ABC. Did a little bit of work for them couple of years ago didn't uh, not for uh, my mates but um, uh, but for the ABC I was on a limited uh, or short-term contract with them didn't enjoy the experience at all I found the atmosphere was pretty cloying um, I found that uh, a number of people who'd been sort of shipped off into sort of podcast creation um, had come from the news departments and they in turn were sort of looking at their longevity in media and we're keen to, and I'll be very careful with my words here, um, keen to make a name for themselves. Uh, and a lot of that is driven by, the, you know, the cuts that were imposed on the ABC over a long period of time. Some of these people that you, that, you, that I work with were working, you know, three-sixteenths of a week and all this sort of stuff, and they were desperate to get that that tenure, to get to become one of, <laughs> to become one become of those long-standing members. Yeah, become yeah. a lifer. And uh, in order to do so, and I'll be very cautious with my words, Jack, um, in order to do so, were keen to make a name for themselves to the point perhaps where uh, journalism had perhaps lost its, uh, not its principles, but but, uh, they were making a lot of things that just didn't go well. Uh, that that, that I didn't think were designed for um, to maximize an audience Um, and uh, and telling 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 stories telling funny stories is uh, was essentially why I came while I was on board with them Um, but these these funny stories were tortured to within an (laughs) an inch of their lives uh, when the uh, the final product came out and it was a bit disappointing to be honest um, but, Comedy by committee is a hard thing to pull off. Yeah, it is indeed. Um, but when we talk about radio, Jack, uh, the, the, the Sanderlands wedding took place over the weekend to uh, – I barely knew this was going on, you know. This is how little I uh, keep an eye on on, on, those, on these sorts of things. But Sanderlands was married uh, in eastern in the eastern suburbs um, – at uh, Swift's at Darling Point, the big house that I think was bought by the Morans. Uh, yeah, up that way, uh, Darling Point, definitely. I, I, I did see some of the footage and uh, I noticed uh, some of my old stamping ground there when uh, you'd walk from uh, you'd walk towards the pub in uh, in Double Bay. Um, uh, he, he apparently spent a million bucks on the wedding. At least the cake was worth ten grand. Uh, he's got plenty of money, so why, you know you can certainly do this himself. But the big question for a lot of people was the appearance by the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And there certainly were some colourful characters at the wedding, Jack, including um, um, uh, John Ibrahim. Uh, I think he was uh, a groomsman, um, a, uh, a colourful history uh, in and around the 
and in and around the cross. I don't think he's, he's ever been charged successfully with a criminal offence. He's certainly never been in jail. Uh, and another groomsman um, uh, was sort of sort of pimping himself around, or pimping pimping the girls around in uh, in limos at one particular point. And there, he, there they all were, rubbing shoulders with the prime minister and the premier of New South Wales, Chris Minns. Not a good mm. look, I'd suggest, Jack. Yeah, politicians seem to like doing this sort of thing. I don't get it. I mean, is this like is Carl Sandilands the new Alan Jones, where everyone has to cow to out to him? I don't know. I've got to confess I've never listened to Kyle Sandilands. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time either, but we know that he's a controversial figure who's uh, who's uh, made some fairly odd statements over the journey, but, but, but it's more like the company you keep. And, I, look, I, I know he wins rating surveys after rating surveys, and we get back to this idea that we're really only dealing with tens of thousands of people rather than millions. And Elbow, when asked, well, for, <laughs> uh, at a press conference, a public housing advocate um, uh, interrupted uh, Elbow's presser and, and said, let's talk about housing, Prime Minister. And Albanese said, I think you've had your say. That was, <laughs> well, not much of a say. And he shut it down and talked about how excited he was to attend Kyle Sandland's wedding. I enjoy weddings, Elbow said. We all do. Um, but uh, I, I didn't think it was – if I'd been advising the Prime Minister, Jack, I would have said no. Yeah, but it seems to be the fashion to do this sort of thing these days. Don't understand it. Don't understand it. I mean, what, 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 what's, what, <laughs> what's the downside here? That Kyle will give you – Give you a touch up on FM radio? No, no, no. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I could never see that with the the, the fear of Alan Jones. I could never make sense. I could of never that figure out. that out either. Mm. Well, Bob Carr had basically a small army of people and an, and, and a junior minister attached to. <laughs> They'd have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and turn on the radio and and sit in the office and make up. And if there was anything that Jonesy said that was. Um, remotely critical of the car government, they'd go into panic mode. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, I'm with Elbow. I enjoy wedding so much, so I've had two myself. There you go, Jack. There you go, indeed. The NDIS, Jack, um, uh, is setting targets the answer to the reform of it, or does it need to be completely redesigned? Yeah. Well, what I found most interesting about all the coverage of this is that the expensive consultants who were engaged to help design this uh, had the belief that it would be self-funding, um, that people would go on the NDS for a short time, this would fit them up um, to return to work and they would go back to work and the government would get tax income from them um, and that would fund the NDIS. Um, and they thought they would have uh, at most a couple hundred thousand people on it um, and they would kind of cycle through. Um, in, in fact, they're uh, up to 500,000 now and on their way to 800,000 um, uh, in the next couple of years um, because people, once they get on it, don't get off it. Um, well, there's and- that, but there are, there are all sorts of um, um, ways of looking at this. Thing. So, so, so with the NDIS, people who were full-time carers for people with disabilities are now able to get into the workforce. So there is a benefit there, although it's extremely difficult to measure. I mean, that was one of the selling points of the NDIS, that people involved in permanent care who had no other employment options available to them 
are now finding their way into employment. Um, and those things are difficult to measure, but those things are, are occurring. I'd suggest if, if you want to look at making the NDIS affordable into the long-term future, we've talked about this, you've got to kill the fraud. You've got to kill it off, and you've got to. You've basically got to make. You've got to make prosecutions, and you've got to put people away. Um, that's probably right. I'm, I'm not sure you go to jail people, but you certainly got to prosecute. You've got, you've, got to, you've got to isolate and discover the fraud in the first place. But there are bigger problems than this. Uh, I think something like ten percent um, of, of primary school age boys are now on NDIS. Um, they're the biggest growing number. Is young kids. Um, who were being diagnosed as autistic. Um, uh, yeah, diagnosed and, um, on the spectrum. And yeah. and what we have there, Jack, is a, pre- a particular pressure in the way. And we're not talking about there being more autistic children than there were in the past, we are, but we are talking about the ability to diagnose um, uh, autism at a, particular, uh, at, at a particular age that simply wasn't around ten, even 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, even the most... Um, uh, even the most uh, caring parents were just simply unaware, and and uh, when we're talking about uh, visits to neurologists and so forth, the, the the determination on autism often wouldn't occur until the child had you know almost moved into the teens, mm. and that's changing now. You know, a lot of people say, "Why is there so much autism about?" And this, in fact, drives a lot of the anti-vaxxer rhetoric. Which is complete nonsense, of course. But um, uh, the the what we have now is a much earlier diagnosis of of autism, uh, of uh, people on the young young children on the spectrum, and we're also seeing, and this is sort of supports what you're saying about the NDIS, that with the right kind of therapy, the right kind of support, that they're actually by the time they hit their secondary school ages, and I'm, I know of a couple of friends of mine who. Who have kids on the spectrum that they're actually that they're actually engaging with people in you know in an integrated environment and they go on from there to study and work and do what uh, everyone else does. Yeah, uh, when I was a kid, we just thought they were boys and therefore rap bags. Huh? Well, you know, we just didn't know. I mean, you know, but that's right, we didn't know. It's yeah, not really we... a joke. We would see certain kids. I remember one kid at school in particular, clearly on the spectrum. When I think about it now, and the kid was bullied, you know, to within an inch of his life. It was a terribly tragic sort of thing, and the school didn't know what to do, and his parents didn't know what to do, and in the end, it was just a, an awful situation that he's probably still suffering from. Yeah, every every school had most classes had a kid like that, or you know, to yeah. some extent. Yeah, yeah. So look. Let's get rid of the fraud. That's the starting point, isn't it? Let's get rid of the fraud. Let's take that take that sugar off the table, make some prosecutions, and if people are really rotting the system, uh, chuck a few of them behind bars. That's my answer. That'll save you at least $6 billion according to the Australian um, Criminal Intelligence Commission. Yeah. Um, I, I think what generally happens with these sort of situations is the consultants they bring in have a, a, a kind of way too sunny understanding of, um, of people's honesty. All right. Now, definitely up your alley here, Jack, is the Migration Review. Uh, it was called by Home Affairs uh, uh, Minister Claire O'Neill uh, last year. Uh, former Public Service Chief Martin Parkinson led the review and it made the case for wholesale reform to the migration system 
to prevent Australia becoming a nation of permanently temporary residents. The 200-page report proposes changes to the skilled migration program, student visas and employer-sponsored visas, and outlines the steps needed to ensure Australia can reap the opportunities and navigate the challenges that arise over the next two decades. What are your thoughts about it, Jack? Um, well, from time to time, the migration system does need a kind of a root and branch referral. What tends to happen is over um, over, over the shorter period is uh, is the governments of both persuasions will fix one problem um, and they do fix that problem or, or lessen that problem, but you get an accumulation of other problems. Um, so That's right. So it's, it's a highly bureaucratic system. Yep. And if you... Re- if you take away some of the bureaucracies, then you'll replace them with others. Yes, that's correct. Um, so uh, every now and, and again, you've got to say, um, uh, well, look, this has just all gotten too complex because we've made it more complex by fixing a particular problem. Now we've got to go back and sort of start again and say, this is how we're going to redesign it. Um, uh, and that will have some problems when you do that because it, it is necessarily complex. Mm. Um, uh, but... Um, it does know um, this from time to time. At this stage, um, we've seen the report. We really don't know what the government's going to do with it. Um, yes. We'll find out in due course. Yes, the, uh, Claire O'Neill has said that uh, she will respond in due course. Um, just one other thing, Jack. Uh, the, the government announced uh, just last week that it is fast-tracking um, citizenship for uh, a number of people who've been in the country for a long time, encouraging people to become citizens. All that's good news, isn't it, Jack? It is, generally, generally speaking, good news, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, uh, May Day, uh, public holiday oh, for oh, you. Just, just before we leave migration, it's awfully hard to design a system that covers everybody and doesn't leave any holes, right? Yeah. Uh, that doesn't leave any um, – that, that doesn't leave cases that are difficult to deal with, right? Um, and – Traditionally, what's happened is in Australia is that a bit of ingenuity has been used to fix those um, handful of cases that are causing you a problem. Um, well, separate um, separate visa categories, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, these sorts of things, yeah, yeah. So we need it. We need it to be simplified, don't we, Jack? But yeah, we, we don't but, want to create those holes at the same time. Yeah, but we, yeah, if you, if you if you if you write the thing for the great majority of people, you can cause problems for a small group. So it's kind of hard to do both things together. Mm. Well said. All right. Now, as I uh, was on my way to saying, uh, you enjoyed uh, the benefits of a May Day holiday. We don't do it in Australia. We think it's communism. Uh, but of course, uh, France uh, had uh, its May Day. International Workers' Day public holiday, and it was on for young and old, Jack. Well, well France has a tradition dating at least back until 1968 that um, the 1st of May is an occasion for um, the coppers to wade into a few people and belt their heads and for the, uh, and for the, for the protesters to pick up uh, cobblestones and throw them at the cops. You know? uh, it was on for young and old yesterday. A real Donnybrook around the country. At least 108 police officers have been injured. Uh, a large number of police wounded was extremely rare, adding that 291 people had been arrested during the unrest. Um, no figures, interestingly enough, on how many um, on how many protesters uh, were injured. It's just not clear on that. 
uh, if, have, you, have you seen the way the uh, the, the, the front the Parisian? They don't mess per, around, do they? I mean, no. water cannon. I mean, I know it's used in a lot of countries, but water cannon certainly in Australia stopped because it's just way too dangerous. I mean, when, once you once you hit with a jet of water uh, at that sort of rate, you can just tumble into anything and and end up being seriously injured or indeed killed. But in France, and I think, you know, I think still you do see, I think in Belgium they they still roll out the water cannon. I don't think they do in the UK. We certainly don't here. South Korea, uh, they're probably... um, probably know better than just about anybody on how to deal with student protesters over the years. Um, uh, I think they've probably still got the water cannon. They often use dyes, Jack, so they can uh, round people up later if they've got a bit of blue or red dye on them. Yeah, that uh, happened during the protests here in, um, uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, we haven't had, we haven't used water cannon. The, the, last, the last water cannon uh, vehicle uh, in New South Wales was donated to the fire brigade, Jack. Hmm. So we haven't yeah, used no, that. I think we have three uh, here in Hong Kong. No. Oh, oh, you're talking about the Hong Kong protests. Yes, I'm hmm. sorry. I thought you were talking about Freedom Marches here. Yes, they donated it to the fire brigade here, where it probably does a bit more use. But, yes, it's still uh, – Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne said uh, – she tweeted that the violence was unacceptable – uh, the Interior Ministry put the overall number of demonstrators at 782,000, including 112,000 in, in Paris. Uh, the uh, the unions uh, say the figure was closer to 3 million, Jack, but still 800,000 people on the streets, that's a big number. Yeah, but it's a big day in France. That's like I say, it's you know, it's a bit like Grand Final Day or a um, bit like the uh, bit like the Anzac Day Collingwood v Essendon clash here, um, uh, but uh, with a little bit more colour and uh, and fury and um, no, no jumper punching. It's the <laughs> it's the real deal. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, indeed they don't mess around in France, and God love them too. You know, you don't get a, when Australians get a bit annoyed, they uh, sit around and moan on the couches. But when the French get annoyed, it's off to the streets to throw a few cut lunches and whatever else comes to hand. Meanwhile, in the Ukraine, Jack, the White House believes that more than 20,000 Russian combatants have died in the battle for the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut in the last five months, which is still ongoing, by the way. I mean, more people, more soldiers have died there from both sides than actually existed in the city before the war or the invasion began. Uh, so Americans are saying a declassified intelligence that's that a further 80,000 Russians have been wounded, so 100,000 taken out of commission. Russia has lost an estimated five men for every Ukrainian soldier. Its forces have killed in the battle for Bakhmut, according to a NATO official. Now, that's disputed by the Donetsk People's Republic, which is a Russian puppet government, uh, and they put the uh, Ukrainian casualties at five times higher. I'd suggest, Jack, the, the answer is somewhere in between, um, but uh, but Russia is losing a lot of people and most are lo- losing a lot of army, and most of them are coming from that Wagner mercenary group, Jack. Yeah. Well, it's notorious for its inhumane methods and it's getting to the point where its leader, one of the worst people on the planet, Yevgeny Prigozhin, 
um, has uh, uh, basically staked his reputation over the battle of of of, uh, <coughs> of um, uh, sorry Bakhmut. Uh, staked his reputation over that and is now sort of talking about pulling the pin and walking away in, in a rare in-depth interview with a prominent Russian or pro-Russian war blogger. He vowed, that's Prigozhin, vowed to withdraw Wagner fighters if they are not provided with much-needed ammunition by the Russian Defence Ministry. Wagner fighters, this is chilling, could be redeployed to Mali, he warned. Um, he has often clashed with Russia's uh, Defence Ministry during the war, accusing officials of not providing his fighters with enough support. This is from a, a BBC report, by the way. Prigozhin also called upon the Russian media and military leadership to stop lying to the Russian population ahead of an expected Ukrainian spring counteroffensive. We need to stop lying to the Ru- Russian population, Prigozhin said, telling them everything is all right. And he praised the Ukrainian military's good, correct military operations and command. He'd be due for a fall down the stairs, wouldn't he, uh, Evgeny? Mm. With that sort uh, of mate, talk? Yeah. Well, they can't win Bakhmut if, if, if Wagner pulls out. Simply, they, they just get, they just get, that would be just a killing zone for the Russian army. Yeah. Uh, interesting. We are very much in that um, uh, in, in that mode in the Ukraine in the Ukrainian war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of Ukraine, uh, we have reached a sort of sta- a stalemate on that eastern front, and it remains to be seen how now that we're getting well and truly into the European spring, has been a cool, mild spring so far, certainly in Eastern Europe. Um, <coughs> uh, just how it's all going to go when. The, when the weather finds up and the ground gets hard. Yes. We'll wait I don't think anyone see. really knows. We'll, we'll wait and see on that. But certainly some huge figures there. That would take Russian that would take Russian deaths up to around about 120,000, Jack, uh, since the invasion. Significant figure. Mm. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> I came across this. Um, someone, uh, someone, I think, had tweeted it up, so I went and had a look at it. The Australian government has issued a travel warning to the United States, Jack, uh, which now includes this. Violent crime is more common than in Australia. Gun crime is also prevalent. If you live in the US, learn and practice active shooted, shooter drills. That's the Australian government uh, advice to people travelling. Uh, Australians travelling to the US and living there, and it comes uh, in the wake of a spree shooter who is now on the run in Texas. Um, and uh, as we discovered, uh, the man on the run, after killing five people, five of his neighbours, including children, uh, had been deported at least four times, Jack. Mm. Uh, can I just say, um, the Australian government travel warnings, I can remember reading them about Hong Kong during our years of pro- our year and a half or so of protests here, um, and I didn't recognise the city I lived in. Oh, look, I understand that. And, and lots of travellers who uh, uh, are intrepid and uh, kind of fearless, uh, uh, I, I follow one on Instagram, and he pops over to Iraq and he, and he goes to places... Uh, in Western Africa, that uh, the uh, Australian government says, please don't go there. Uh, the, 
they might be a little bit more cautious, Jack, because uh, it's it's then their job to try and pull people out who get picked, who get uh, who get pinched in some of these very very dangerous places. I'm not suggesting for a moment that America is, but this is a real problem. I mean, spree shootings have been a, long, a bit of problem for a long time, but this this man on the run, his name is Francisco Orapresa. He was deported, Jack, four times. Kept coming over the border. Um, he, he killed five of his neighbours, including a child, after someone said, can you please stop shooting your AR-15? He was on he the, jacked on up the, and stormed into the house and shot the place up. On the porch having a shoot, and uh, the next-door neighbour said, look, my kid's trying to sleep. My one-year-old kid is trying to sleep, and uh, and he took, he took umbrage and then charged into the house. Um, it's a terrible, terrible story. I hope they catch up with uh, Francisco Oropesa. As we record this, he is uh, still on the run. Um, he basically, I think most people, when we say talking about storming him in, storming into the house, he had a high-powered rifle, an AR-15, semi-automatic, and just kept shooting into the house. Um, yeah. Uh, we would like to think that uh, he'll end up with a bit of high-caliber therapy uh, at some point in the very near future, Jack. Um, is Texas still doing the death penalty? I can't recall. Death penalty in te- Texas? Yeah. Do, oh, <laughs> you better believe it, Jack. Mm. I mean, Texas, <laughs> it's a great Simpsons line when Maggie Simpson is found to be the one culpable of shooting Mr. Burns. And uh, the, the joke is, uh, well, no no one, no one would ever... No, no one would ever charge. Uh, no one ever would charge a, a four-year-old girl with murder. And then, and then there's a pause. He goes, maybe Texas. Um, yeah, no, very much a death penalty there. Um, uh, the worst thing that could happen is that he flees to Mexico. Or God knows, he can't be tumbled over the border again. Um, uh, he, he'll either be shot dead by police, or he will be taken into custody and. And, uh, and the death penalty would be on the table there without doubt. Now, Jack, we know and we discussed last week that Joe Biden uh, is having another run and uh, he'll, uh, he'll be as old as Anton Chernenko when he becomes, uh, when he becomes uh, president if he's elected in 2024. But, of course, one of the things, and I'm glad you pointed this out here, this actually places greater... Uh, greater uh, emphasis on the role of Kamala Harris now um, because the vice president is literally a heartbeat away from the White House, Jack. Yeah, Van Jones, who was a, uh, an official in the Obama administration and is now a commentator on CNN, uh, put this, uh, I said this on the, on the CNN the other day, she's in such an unusual position. She's a woman, she's black, she's Asian. And she's running alongside the oldest person to ever do it. So she's essentially running for president. That's what she's doing. And I think that people understand that. So she has to lift her game, doesn't she? Um, because if Biden is to be re-elected, it will be as much an endorsement of her as him. Mm. That's pro- I yes. mean, well, that, that might be overstating a little bit, but... but she, she, because of his age, um, uh, she, she has to be seen as a viable proposition as a president in the event where Biden, um, uh, Joe Biden may become incapacitated. 
Yeah, this is, this, off. this is a this is a small problem for the Democrats because it's hard to make her seem like a viable candidate for president. First of all, the, the number one mark against her is that she's a Californian. It always is for Democrats, just for our listeners, just to explain that, uh, that, that Californian Democrats and indeed New England Democrats, Jack, a little bit like Joe, tend not to uh, find favour among Democrat voters or indeed independent voters in those states where elections, presidential elections are won, um, the Midwest, uh, the Southwest, uh, <coughs> to name, you know, the two sort of, sort of the, the, those, were, those are the areas where elections are won, including places like Pennsylvania and most recently Georgia. Um, so, yes, that's, that's a big job for her. Um, you said she was making sense last week, Jack. She was, yes, um, only briefly, but she was making sense for you know, um, two or three minutes. <laughs> Moment of clarity. Mm. Uh, yeah, big job for her. I, I've got to ask, Jack, who would be Donald Trump's running mate? Um, yeah, I, well, I don't think he's going to get the nomination, so I, I don't think it's going to matter. But he's going to have to name someone, surely, at some point. Um, he doesn't no, have to. He doesn't it, have it, to until the the RNC, the, the convention. Yeah. But but um, and if he gets that far, but it's a it, it's an intri- it's an intriguing question. It's uh, it is a bit of fantasy footy. But um, who would it be? It's not going to be Mike Pence, you wouldn't reckon. No, it was certainly like it won't be Mike Pence. You can say for sure. Um, uh, who wants to kill their career? Is the answer? Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, if you're a young up and coming politician, they're the people who are normally keen to be to get the vice presidential nomination. Um, not always, but quite often. Um, I mean, Dick Cheney was happy to take it with George W. Bush, and and he knew that was he was never well, going to become he, president. He, he was he was the president, really. Well, Cheney was really yeah. he was really um, the boss. But 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 generally speaking, it's a it's a you know an Al Gore or someone who sees this as a stepping stone to the presidency. But if you take the um, the vice president's job to a, a, or, or become the vice presidential candidate with Donald Trump, um, you're basically killing your career stone dead. I would think. <laughs> Fair point. I'm just trying to think. You might have a crack with him. Um, uh, it's bound not to be someone from Florida because I think that's already done. Um, so you, you, you're looking at someone in the Midwest, God knows. I mean, maybe Melania might, might pick someone off the telly and then get blamed for it by her husband. Yeah. Um, might get some sort of grifter there. Just to finish off but, there, Van Jones. It wouldn't be a Chris Christie, for instance. He won't do it. Oh, Chris, Christie, <laughs> not a lot of love there, mate. Not no. a lot of love there between you and the Trumps to these days. And, and Chris, Chris Christie would make a pretty pretty handy vice presidential candidate, I think, but he won't do it. I, I think he might go okay in the primaries. I don't think he'll go deep. I don't think he'll go that deep into the primaries, but I think Christie, who hasn't yet nominated, but uh, may well, uh, might, be a, uh, might be a bit of a, a sticking point for uh, both for Trump and, and RDS. Well, just, he's a politician. He's a politician of substance, not just physical substance, but he's a politician of some substance. He's a substantial human being physically, yeah. but he's also pretty good on his feet. Mm. Oddly enough, um, mm. just to wrap that up from Van Jones on CNN, uh, who has that sort of insider knowledge, he says of Kamala Harris, she is a decent person, but she's a drag on the ticket. I just had that going. Oh, now this is oh, this is the host of the show. This is the host of the show. Jones. I can't recall his name. 
Um, the Harris is a, Harris is a decent person, but she's a drag on the ticket. I just had the conversation with Van Jones. That's why we know it's not Van Jones. I think she has got to up her game, or that will end up being the case. Uh, we did see uh, the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner with uh, President Biden uh, brandishing the uh, uh, the aviators um, and uh, and gave a pretty good account of himself, Jack. Not that he's quite funny. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he, he was he was okay. <laughs> I can't imagine why you'd want to go, but still. Yeah. I think he sort of handled it pretty well, but it, it, it seems that um, the He's being very, very carefully media managed these days and uh, the press secretary uh, there is uh, basically organising the questions uh, in advance so he can answer them in advance, Jack. Uh, yes, which is embarrassing for the journalist in question. Um, I think it was it an Agence France press um, photographer managed to get a clip of the card that President Biden was holding in his hand and it had the name of the journalist who he was to ask the first question of had um, had her name plus a phonetic spelling so he could get that right. And it had the, not quite the exact, but pretty much the first question she was going to ask. And he had that in his hand. So he goes to her and says, gives her a name and she asked the question and he's already got the question in his hand. And that looks awfully embarrassing for the journalist um, uh, and for the news organisation, LA Times, you work for. Yeah, what I'm going to say is that's excellent work from um, from um, Biden's press secretary. By the way, that's excellent work. But it, and, from a journalistic point of view, it's really not the way it should be. And excellent work from the f- photographer to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there you go. A little jo- embarrassing. Joe's, Joe's, Joe's best line at the White House correspondence dinner was to say that, okay, that's me done. I've spoken for 10 minutes. I won't be asking any questions. I'm going to leave. Um, uh, and the, the White House correspondents thought that was hilarious. But my view of that was Joe wasn't laughing with you. He was laughing at you because you put up with this. Yeah, oh, look, it's always that way, though. I mean, Obama put in a couple of fantastic performances there at the uh, uh, correspondence lunch, including one uh, correspondence dinner, including one where he absolutely baked uh, Donald Trump, who sat there rather sullenly. I don't remember Trump ever turning up to it. He flicked. No, it, he, 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 he they cancelled it when he was the president. Actually, the, the funniest performance I ever saw there was from um, Laura Bush. Yeah, she's terrific, uh, giving her husband uh, George yep. W a bit of a slapping. Yes. Uh, doesn't get up, doesn't get up, doesn't get up early, or oh, gets to bed pretty early at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if if anything happens after nine o'clock, George will be in bed. <laughs> That's right. She, I think it was W who said to her, "I want to be better, can better regarded as a president." She said, "We'll stay up a few hours." You're going to have to stay up later, George. You know. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jack, RDS has been on the whirlwind uh, tour of Europe to, uh, uh, shall we say, mixed reviews. Um, uh, British uh, British business chiefs uh, that DeSantis spoke to at a high-profile London event last week on Friday described it as a tired performance, horrendous, low wattage and like the end of an overseas trip. Uh, one UK business figure said DeSantis looked bored and stared at his feet 
as he met with titans of British industry in an event co-hosted by Lloyds of London. A second business figure who was in the room said it was a low wattage performance and that nobody in the room was left thinking, this man's going places. Ouch. They said it it felt really like a a bit like we were watching a state-level politician. I wouldn't be surprised if those in attendance came out thinking, it's that guy, that's not the guy. Uh, yeah, who knows? But um, to be to be honest, if you'd put Ronald Reagan in that room, they would have come out and said, "Well, he's dumb." Uh, they would have said the same thing about George W. Bush, and they won. They won twice, uh, and none of these people will get a vote. Um, DeSantis is in a, an extraordinarily strong position at this stage to be polling in front of the sitting president. Um, when he hasn't even announced his candidature and he's still just a state governor, it's a pretty remarkable statistical blip. Now, whether that follows through, who knows? But <clears throat> he's tra- he's travelling as well as you could expect him to be. Well, it, there's another big issue in the United States, and we're going to take it. We're going to look at the United States first and their issues with homelessness, but we're going to expand that into a more of a global discussion and look at some of those countries and one in particular that's done very, very well. But uh, the reason we uh, we are talking about homelessness is that Democrats in the Oregon House of Representatives have introduced a bill that would decriminalise homeless encampments in public places and allow homeless people to sue for $1,000 if they're harassed or told to leave. Um, uh, this uh, bill was proposed by two uh, state uh, uh, representatives, both Democrats, uh, in and around uh, the Portland area, and they're talking about decriminalisation of homelessness. Uh, it seems to me, Jack, there is a very profound issue of homelessness uh, in Australia. There is a very profound issue of homelessness I- in the United States. This particular bill put forward by state Democrats in Oregon is really just tinkering with the problem. Yes, it doesn't really. I, mean, address I think, it. The, think there are different homeless issues, homelessness issues in different places. That's that's certainly true. Well, it, it's not as if it's a, an issue that can't be solved, and uh, and this is why I wanted to talk about what the Finns have done, uh, and and what you have to do in order to solve problems of homelessness. If we look at the Finnish model. Uh, it's the only country in Europe where homelessness is falling, but it, but it's only it, it's not done because of some um, uh, fly-by-night policy arrangement. It's a long-term commitment that the Finns have made. Um, uh, in the United States, homelessness, that is people sleeping rough on the streets, it's around 1% of the population. That's a staggering number. The Finns have got... The homelessness at, at, at less than one-tenth of that. Uh, <clears throat> and, and there's lots of reasons why they've been successful. Um, they built houses, not temporary shelters. So when we look back at the Democrats here, what they're talking about is let's, um, uh, let's make it lawful for people to sleep rough. And that's uh, really just um, not addressing the substantial issues. And the issue is, Jack, around homelessness, the answer, unsurprisingly, is homes, providing homes, not temporary accommodation. I think that's the issue for some aspects of the homelessness situation, not all. 
Well, it's it's what the Finns have done, and it's been going on now for fifteen years. So it's not as if it's you know a policy that they made two years ago, and they're looking at uh, solid figures ever you know in that short period of time. This is uh, this is something that's been going on. Firstly, they addressed and continue to address the issue of affordable housing in Finland, and that's a big thing. This is these are red hot issues. I'd argue that this is probably the biggest issue that's facing the Albanese government right now is affordable housing in Australia, uh, and and the spin-off effect of that is homelessness. Um, housing First in Finland, their, their goal was, and this is going back to 2008, was to create 2,500 new homes, and it has created 3,500. Um, <clears throat> uh, rough sleeping has all been but eradicated in Helsinki, uh, and the only temporary shelter left is a 50-bed um, uh, temporary accommodation. The other people, uh, other people who found themselves in homelessness um, uh, have, uh, have found themselves in homes. Often um, they might, some people have stayed there for seven or eight years. Some people have, uh, have uh, lived in these, uh, uh, in, the, in these homes for a year or two and then moved out, got back on their feet and then moved out. That they do have laws like uh, they, ban, they ban alcohol consumption and they ban um, and they ban drug consumption in in Finnish uh, public housing, uh, <clears throat> and uh, they also um, uh, must uh, uh, pay rent and they also must um, uh, uh, consult with um, uh, consult with uh, people appointed by the government to assist them. Um, the, the Finns have spent, spent 250 million euro creating new homes and hiring 300 extra support workers. Um, but overall, when you address, well, it's 250 million euros, a lot of money for a smallish country like Finland. What they what they've seen is that there is an economic bounty that goes along with it. You know that once you resolve, substantially resolve the problem of homelessness, um, the savings in emergency health care, the justice system, in social services, uh, as much as sort of 15,000 euros per every homeless person. So these things, one, are solvable, two, are beneficial, you know, overall in, in economic and financial terms. So why isn't Australia de- dealing with this Issue firstly of affordable housing, and and then the issue of homelessness. Um, well, we're seeing figures, sharp rises among women in their in their uh, uh, late middle ages uh, becoming homelessness, uh, becoming homeless. Um, well, firstly, we need to address the issue of affordable housing, and then we need to, to develop and throw some money into creating homes for people who are homeless, not shelters. Let's look at it in three cities first in the Amer- in Americas. We started with Portland. Portland, San Francisco, LA are the three most um, biggest homelessness populations, right? Um, and there is absolutely zero will. They're all progressive-run um, uh, cities, and there's zero will for the sort of um, uh, policies that you're talking about in Finland, the tough love. Um, that is, we'll build you a house, um, but... No drugs, no booze, et cetera, et cetera. There's zero political will to do that because they don't want to. 
Um, there's also zero will to build affordable housing. In fact, the, the progressives don't want affordable housing in their area because it's going to reduce their property values. Um, now, that's, so that's the that's, problem that's, we're facing in Australia too. Yep. Uh, and, and it's not necessarily a progressive one. I mean, I wouldn't. I would argue that it's not. I mean, you, yes, yes, you're highlighting uh, two uh, progressive states in in Oregon and California, um, but this is part of the problem here. I, I, I actually think if um, if the Albanese government doesn't start addressing issues of affordable housing, uh, it it, it runs the risk of just falling into the normal electoral cycles and and uh, being voted out of power. This is a very powerful issue for voters under the age of forty and and those above it, but but predominantly those people who have found themselves out and cast out of the housing market because it is just not affordable for them to do so. Yeah, uh, we want to try it here in Hong Kong. It's even worse here, and it was one of the drivers of the protest movement um, uh, three years ago. Um, and part of addressing it means that someone's got to take a bit of a hit, and that means existing homeowners um, uh, will not enjoy um, the never-ending cycle of rising house values when you when you address this. Um, but that, but it has to happen. It does have to happen. And, and what really what we need to avoid from happening, and I presume this is an issue in Hong Kong, I did see uh, in the UK uh, where a lot of house, a lot of housing um, um, development, uh, apartment style uh, development in West London uh, was being marketed in Dubai and in Hong Kong uh, and in other parts of the world where there's a lot of wealth. Uh, and these houses are being sold and then, being left empty. Um, uh, I, I, I would get a three ads a week from London um, uh, uh, property developers. Yeah. And, and, look, I'm not suggesting that you would do this, but if you invested in it, you would probably only live there for a month a, month a year. Uh, uh, no, I'd probably, I'd probably rent it out, to be quite honest. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that might be solving the problem. But we have really big uh, rental accommodation. I know the Greens have been on this. The Greens are calling for a... Uh, a rental freeze, and that's you know again, that's very much like the sort of Democrat response in Oregon. You are you are dealing with the symptoms rather than solving the problem. Um, the, the the problem for 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 many Australians is how to get into the housing market. I know the Albanese government uh, just introduced a, a scheme where uh, family members can pull together, uh, friends can pull together to. Uh, uh, to get deposits and, uh, and and apply for mortgages, God only knows how uh, how the uh, how the mortgage uh, vendors will see that. Um, but the issue is more affordable housing. That's the first step in this, and and you know you can do these things concurrently. But the other issue is you, you you're throwing money into temporary accommodation is not the answer. You have to give people a home that they can call their own and so they can get back on their feet. Uh, yes, they can. Um, uh, yes, they, they, they have to pay uh, a, a, a small amount of rent. Yes, they have to behave themselves while they're in there in terms of consumption of alcohol and, and, um, and, and drugs. And, and yes, they have to uh, continue a, a form of counselling as they go to basically get them prepared to 
enter back into the workforce. And then, with a little bit of luck, uh, within a year or so, they can move out into and, and move into their own form of affordable housing. So we just don't seem to have any sort of strategy in this country, uh, Jack, for dealing with this thing. I think it's the big issue for anyone under 40 in this country and lots of people who are above it. And there is that clash, there is inherent clash between those who own property and often multiple properties uh, and those who have none. And and that gulf is widening by the day and it becomes a real, it's become a really hot political issue and will only get hotter. Yeah, part of it is a planning issue. Uh, where do you, where, yes. uh, um, you know, people like their single family units, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, they don't want multiple um, uh, unit dwellings. Multiple dwellings on a property, yeah. yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's that's something, I, you know, I don't know what the last time you were down in Melbourne, you had a good drive around there. Something that's something Melbourne has done a bit better than Sydney, uh, and that is to have um, medium-density housing, um, uh, uh, dual occupancy residences, those things are encouraged far more by local government um, uh, than they are, you know, on my viewing of it, in Sydney, where people still live in their, you know, even in the inner west, still live in uh, sort of almost quarter acre blocks, mm. uh, a single dwelling, you know, housing two, two, three, four people. Um <laughs> the, the issue is you have to change that mentality. And I know there are a lot of big apartment blocks and so forth going up, but you need to encourage developers to, uh, to, uh, to, to, have, to create more, more dense uh, uh, residential properties um, and just, on, just on single pieces of land. Um, <clears throat> I, w- I reckon this, is, this, is, this would be my step towards doing this. And the Albanese government, I think if they if they if they are blind to this issue or if they choose to ignore it, if they see it's too hard, I, I think it's they are in great peril. I would have a um, uh, a national uh, <coughs> a national uh, uh, conference on housing that involves all levels of government, where they sit down and start making some practical changes towards planning and development, uh, where they don't where they devote enormous amount of public money. And it will require a lot of public money um, to build affordable housing, and you do so knowing that in those areas where you build this affordable housing, Jack, there are going to be people who have mortgaged, who are sitting on mortgages not far away, who have bought their homes. So there's going to be a lot of political friction over it, but they need to do this. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, I mean, I, I think it's the, you know, this is one of the reasons why they were elected. Um, and that was essentially because the previous government had done nothing. Uh, and if they don't address it, I think they're just profound, profound, profound problems coming their way. Uh, <clears throat> I'd also say that you know this this building of affordable housing must go hand in hand with a response uh, of using perhaps public buildings, uh, uh, renovating and, and refurbishing public buildings to create um, small and limited housing for people who are homeless. Um, and uh, and and that that to me is a step in the right direction. I don't see too much in housing policy coming from the Albanese government that gives me any confidence that they're across this. They understand the threats in doing nothing. Um, it, it takes a little bit of political courage to do it stuff like courageous. this, and, and that's not often in in ready supply. 
Yeah, that's right. And, but I think doing nothing is the worst of all of the options um, mm. available to them. Now, Jack, ChatGPT has caught your eye, I see. Um, ChatGPT, we did an entire episode written by ChatGPT, Jack, um, the conditional release program. And I've got to tell you that uh, typing my name in there uh, creates all manner of <laughs> misinformation. Typing some of the books that I've written in there creates all sorts of misinformation. Um, it, 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 ChatGPT, when it doesn't know or seems uncertain, just seems to be comfortable lying. Yes. So why, I mean, look, uh, we talked about the example where it might be of use and I, and I thought maybe if you're selling real estate and you put in virtual parameters around a particular house, Twicklet, particular dwelling, you know, how many bedrooms, all that sort of stuff, uh, you might, uh, you might uh, find uh, it'll write the copy for you pretty well. But here we're finding it, finding its way into medicine, Jack. Um, so it would seem. Um, I, I have a better feeling for what it's doing in law, and it's um, there are not just ChatGPT, but there are um, uh, uh, a number of the big uh, law and accounting firms have either um, bought licenses for um, uh, similar uh, artificial intelligence machines or develop yeah. their own. Um, well, software, and they, just, and they, and they are quite capable. <laughs> they're capable to a point. Uh, I, oh, I no, think if, these, are, these are quite capable. Uh, I think if you, it, 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 provided you give it the right instructions, if you wanted a, a, an examination, for, for example, I typed in Unholy Trinity uh, and, and asked, I basically asked it to write a, a, a not a review, but a, basically a preamble about the book. And it told me that, um, that uh, it was co-authored by Dennis Ryan's son, uh, Jared Ryan, who's actually a convicted pedophile, and that's not Dennis Ryan's son, by the way. That's just that it just that it plucked this name, Jared Ryan. The only one I can think of is Vince that it, that it, that, it, that it coincided with was Vincent Jared Ryan, who was a convicted pedophile uh, from uh, from from uh, up uh, north northern New South Wales, uh, Newcastle Maitland. Um, very strange answers to some of these things. And in fact, when I got around to putting. Um, uh, the uh, the uh, the fine cotton fiasco in there. It told me that Patria wasn't the co-author, um, and it had been written by uh, someone else in, in entirely. Which so it, it, it's a it's a strange thing when it doesn't seem to know. It's great at writing benign sort of uh, benign sort of text, but if it doesn't know, it just lies. Yeah. Well, I've watched it. Um, I've watched a, 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 a not ChatGPT, but another. Uh, AI um, uh, service or machine, um, write a contract and do a really good job in no time at all. I mean, it, it's, it, it is going to revolutionise the way that law is practised um, and I have a fair bit of understanding of that. Well, all I can tell you, Jack, you want to have a pretty good look at that contract draft because, <laughs> because it might throw some strange things in there. Now, very briefly, we just want to talk about, and we'll do a more expanded discussion here, but... Um, you, you wanted to address the issue of, of, of coal consumption for electricity generation in, in China, and it is growing, and, th and that must be of concern to anyone about climate change. Now, you can talk about the rationale for it, but the simple fact of the matter is that China's consumption of coal for electricity generation is, 
Well, basically, um, uh, it, it is almost well. It's, it's almost nine times that of what it was in twenty nineteen. Uh, yeah, it's growing faster than all the other people who are closing power stations put together. Look, can I can I just simply say we can have this discussion? Um, I, I, I know your position on climate change, but. The simple reality and the things that you continue to point out are absolutely genuine, that the developing world is still consuming um, um, uh, fossil fuel-based um, energy at a rate um, that, uh, uh, that is basically um, um, rendering all sorts of renewables uh, almost, uh, almost superfluous, Jack. So yeah, we'll have a, and, we'll, and the we'll difficult the Chinese are building lots of renewables, but they're also trying to expand their economy further. So they're building lots of new power sources. And as I think it was the body called the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air noted that the technologies for storing clean energy are not yet mature enough to be deployed at the scale considered essential mm. for China's plans to expand the reuse of use of renewable energy. That is, uh, the, the you, you can expand the new renewable energy. What you can't do is turn that into usable power on the scale that China requires. Well, what, what they're talking about there is a the carbon storage technology. That's that's essentially what they're talking about. And my understanding is that the technology of it does not exist uh, at the moment. No, they're not, they're not talking about carbon storage. They're talking about techniques to store um, renewable energy to make it available when you need it. And the what they're saying is you can't do that on the scale that China requires. China requires. So China's yeah. got to build coal-fired power stations. So we'll look at we'll look at energy and the developing world in greater detail in our next episode. Um, but the figures are pretty staggering, um, just in terms of consumption, Chinese consumption of coal, in particular, uh, to drive uh, electricity, drive their economy, and keep the lights on, and. And, uh, and keep the lights on for a growing population. Uh, in sport, Jack, uh, we have a new CEO at uh, the AFL, Andrew Dillon. Um, he'll take over, I believe, uh, McLaughlin will remain in the chair until at least October, until the end of this season, and then Dillon will take over from that point on. Did you ever play in Victorian Amateur Football Association, Jack? No, I did not. I played uh, played a hundred odd games in the VFA. Why didn't I get a game? Why didn't I get a Guernsey as CEO of the, the AFL? Seems to be the one thing you need to have have done um, is uh, is play uh, is play for an old boys team. Uh, McLaughlin was a was a player at the Uni Blues and, and uh, Dylan Uni, was, Uni was Blacks, an old Uni Blacks. Yep. Uh, Blues Blacks. I think the Blacks were the the lower the lower yeah lower lower grade um, and I thought he might have been a blues player he won about football apparently when he wasn't playing polo uh, and Dylan was of course uh, with the old Zavs um, yeah, six, six flags on the trot wasn't it at, the old, at old Zavs yeah something like that yeah um, look he's got much he's got much on his plate I mean as I say he won't be in the chair for, for six months or so um, but uh, he's got the Hawthorne Racism Review fallout that's still sort of <laughs> bubbling away and I don't know what they're going to do about that uh, and of course uh, and we'll talk about this in a little while a new team in Tasmania we're not quite sure when they'll come on board it wouldn't be next year I don't think um, uh, but uh, there will be a 19th side and there will be a Tasmanian 
goes, well, they have to be the Tasmanian Tigers, wouldn't they, Jack? Oh, they can't be. Richmond will be most upset. What are they going to be? The Devils. They'll have to well, be the Devils. Will this, this be like the, the, the battle over the Port and uh, Collingwood on the, on the stripy jumpers? Yeah, well, it can't be the Tigers. Whew, there's 100,000 Richmond members <laughs> hit the streets French style if that happened. Um, uh, and, of course, with this new Tasmanian side, we, we, we wish uh, Dylan, uh, uh, we wish uh, Mr. Dylan uh, all I, the I have best. a solution to that problem. Um, uh, I think it was uh, Paddy McGuinness um, uh, famously uh, at an ALP conference. They used to hold them down in Tasmania and he was asking for a beer after having had a few. Um, and you remember the Cascade bottles had the Tassie Tiger on it, you know, yeah. um, on the front. And he says to the barman, give me a couple of those beers with the striped dogs on them, will you? you know? <laughs> so they could call them the Tassie Striped Dogs, mate. Yeah. Tassie Striped Dogs, yeah. The Tassie thylacines doesn't really roll off the roll off the tongue. Now Elbow's got involved here, and there was a bit of controversy about that in regard to homelessness. They got a lot of people living in tents in Hobart. Rental crisis up the wazoo. In fact, Jack, on a review last weekend, there was not one property in Hobart up for rent. Um, and uh, there is a rent rental crisis there right now. Uh, so uh, Elbows uh, Elbows Optics uh, are turning up in Hobart, announcing a 23,000 23, seat stadium. Um, uh, was met with some controversy. I think overall Tasmanians would uh, be approving of all of this. Uh, the problem I've got with this, Jack, is that Bell Reeve Oval holds 20,000 right now, and it hosts tests and. T20s and ODIs and a few games of footy every year. Why, why, why isn't that good enough? Um, I suspect the reason why is that uh, the news, there has been a, an exponential growth in um, the quality of football stadiums. If you look at Adelaide Oval, Perth yeah. Stadium, all that sort of stuff, they are just so much better. People very much more enjoy going to them um, and everyone wants, everyone wants one now. Yeah, look, there's uh, yeah, 23,000 seats compared to the 20. Yeah, Bell Reeve is, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind it's of basic. A, a regional ground, yeah. And, and the fact is right now, Stadia. Um, Stadia got about 25 years and then they have to be replaced. There's talk of uh, Marvel being uh, being replaced at some time fairly soon. You know, it's, it's been around for about that length of time. And um, that's really, it's really a factor of... Stadiums were much the same for a hundred years, a few differences, but the the design and um, uh, the the user experience is improving so quickly that people need to catch up. Yeah, all right. Well, I, know, I presume it's going to be very popular in Tasmania. I think they'll be two or three seasons away from starting. Uh, as well, well, we the, go- the real trick with a Tasmanian team is. Um, can you pull the whole state behind it? Because the, there's a kind of a, um, a fair gap between the north and, north and the northwest yeah, and, and, and the Hobart area. But can you pull them all together around a, um, a single chain? I think they probably can, but that's going to take some work. Need a lot of money to run a footy team, mate. Yep. Need, uh, it used to be about 10 million, 10 million a season. Now you need about 30 or 40 before you even start thinking about profits. That's how much money, revenue you've got to make. Um, some of it comes through broadcast rights, but a lot of it's driven by membership, you know, uh, merchandise sales, all that sort of stuff. I just, uh, we, you know, Collingwood have just come from nowhere, come from the clouds. They're, um, uh, they beat uh, Adelaide by a few points, Jack. But did you see the game at all? I did. 
Did you see the umpiring? Uh, it wasn't great. It was – there were just so many howlers, but the one that really caught my mind was the uh, defender, Murphy, went to take a mark and got absolutely cleaned up from the front, no free kick paid, and while he was being assisted from the ground with blood streaming from his nose, Jordan Degoe um, basically paddling the ball in front of him with the doctors, with the doctors holding up uh, Fogarty, getting him off the ground. So Goey just let the ball go rather than have a collision with the doctors. And that was paid a free kick for intentional out of bounds. She does yeah. some shockers, mate. Dane Swan, who is a Collingwood man and therefore entitled to be a bit biased, reckons umpire 19 needs to be investigated. All I'll say, Jack, is will umpire 19 get a gig next week to be something to watch because uh, it was terrible. So, I mean, Collingwood won, so they don't have too many complaints, but the, the umpiring was – I don't know how – uh, umpires on the field could have missed that the number of um, number of umpires. What they got three or four now? I can forget. Oh, well, half a dozen, I think. Um, <laughs> not counting well, boundary what umpires. I think's most, what man, I think is most. What I think is most. Missed that staggering, mate. What I think is most remarkable about the, the the AFL at the moment is how often Collingwood are coming back from a three quarter time deficit uh, and and winning. Um, I think they're. Uh, 13. Of the, last, of the last 18 games they've played, about 15 of them have been decided by less than two goals, they've, and they've won nearly they've, all. They've, of, they've gone into the gone in gone into three quarter times down on 13 occasions to win 10 times. Yeah, those are the stats. And uh, I've got to tell you, I've been watching footy for a hell of a long time, and the last team um, I can remember who were as good at this as um, coming back from a three quarter time deficit was 1981 and 82, and it was your mob, uh, Carlton, who were very, very good at it in those it's a good. It's a, it's a bloody good habit to have. Um, mm. uh, and, and what's more, it makes the sides they play. If they're three or four goals in front, they're towing. They're, they're, they're nervous at three-quarter time because yep. they know they're going to come at them. Um, look, a couple of things, a couple of takeaways from the, the round just completed. Melbourne gave – Melbourne, who are for mine the best side in it at the moment, Gave North Melbourne a, a, a mother of a hiding, and Carlton uh, smashed uh, the West Coast Eagles uh, very much under man. We know they got a long injury list, um, but uh, some of the tackling pressure and and uh, physical pressure around the football non-existent from the Eagles in the second half. Um, and so we've got a bit of an uneven comp, Jack. And I, I suggest yeah, those two well, sides are uncompetitive at the moment. Yeah, uh, the, the bottom two, North and the Eagles, are pretty hopeless. But, but look, look, I think North, are, I'm not sure about the Eagles, but I think North are on the right track, but they've got a long way to go. I, I think the Eagles have got, I mean, the Eagles should have been um, rebuilding three seasons ago and, and, mm. and for some reason they didn't. And so they've got three, I'd say, two to three years of pain ahead of them. North Melbourne, perhaps a little bit less, but uh, they're not, at mm. the moment, not competitive. Meanwhile, Jack and the NRL... It is a very competitive competition. The West Tigers, who who are cellar dwellers, beat last year's premiers. Um, uh, and when you've got a competition like that, it tells you that if you if, if you, even the better sides turn up and only sort of put in ninety five percent, they're going to get beaten. Yeah, and I couldn't remember last time West Tigers won. So, 
Oh, they've had a couple this year, but uh, yeah, no, they are the sell dwellers, but uh, up they popped and uh, almost in uh, defiance, you can almost name your own odds on them having a win. They uh, they beat uh, last year's premiers. It's a sign of an even competition. I don't know that the AFL's got the same thing. Um, now, to take us out, Jack, we did have something from Ray. Ray, uh, 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 We did have a letter from Ray Bateman. <laughs> G'day, Ray. I know you're listening. I will get on to it next week. He had a protest about something that I said about him. We'll get on to that, but we're running out of time, Jack, because, of course, we've got the coronation, and uh, and uh, I know you'll be waiting with breath and bated uh, at the very thought, yeah, waving a flag. Waving my little flag. I know yeah. you'll be watching. Watch the whole damn thing. Goes for about goes for about 28 hours, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the, yeah. It, well, it Betty's does. did. Betty's did. That went for that went forever. Uh, Charles might be a little bit truncated, Jack. But what are we what are we celebrating here? Well, uh, I just like this. It was from Associated Press, and I just lo- just love the writing for it. Uh, King Charles III lives in a palace, travels in a chauffeur-driven Bentley, and is one of Britain's richest men. But he's similar to many of his subjects in one very basic way. His fair, his family life is complicated, very complicated. <laughs> There's a second wife, so, an so. embarrassing brother, and an angry son and daughter-in-law or with allies who aren't shy about whispering family secrets in the ears of friendly reporters. I thought that was very good. And the last thing was from Q&A. Um, uh, uh, we're recording this on the Tuesday, so it was Monday night. I saw it last night, and they were talking about or they're all very keen on banning vaping or restricting the sales of vaping. I know, it's crazy. I don't get it. Yeah. And, um, and we, you know, they had the little strip on the bottom with the questions from the audience. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I like this. It was from a school teacher who said, the boys' toilets now smell like strawberries and watermelons. And and seriously, they thought that was a downside. I've got to say, you from from boys' toilets in primary school, that would be an upside. You know? That is an improvement. I, 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 uh, uh, I just simply want to say, if anyone wants to get into the coronation uh, this uh, weekend, perhaps you should just take a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a look at um, um, <clears throat> what's his name, the Scottish comedian. Whoa, sorry, Frank Frankie Boyles, who who uh, who, who who has got a thing at you. Be able to check it out. It goes for about fifty minutes on on YouTube. Frankie Boyles, farewell to the monarchy, twenty twenty three. Very very funny. But the point is made in that documentary, Jack that of the sort of 2,000 aristocrats in the UK, they own a third of the land in the UK. Mm. Um, and uh, and a lot of it's farmland and a lot of it's shopping centres. And, yeah, so it's not in quite an equitable sort of arrangement. But, uh, look, that takes us out this week. I do recommend Frankie Boyle's Farewell to the Monarchy 2023. There's a lot of swearing, well, as you'd expect, from Frankie Boyle. While we're on that, the, the, the Duke of Westminster owns Belgravia. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think. What, what's is it? Is it Regent Street? The big the, and around Piccadilly, they're they basically all owned by the royal family, mm. um, uh, and <laughs> so they significant land holdings that have basically been around since William the Conqueror. Mm. Um, yeah, so. Uh, 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 please do check out the Boyle Take, uh, rather rough and tumble Scottish comedian. Very, very funny. 
check it out on YouTube. And thank you, Jack, for your time today. We've run a little bit long. We had a couple of tech problems along the way. Um, but uh, thank you for your time today, Jack. Cheers, mate. And uh, and we just want to remind our listeners, please drop us a line, including you, Ray. You will not be ignored, I promise. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, yeah, drop us a line whenever you like. You know how to get hold of me uh, on Twitter, and you can get hold of Jack on his Substack, which I think is HK Jack at uh, Hong Kong Jack. Hongkongjack.substack.com. Uh, there you go. Check that out too. Drop him a line too and let him know what you think of him. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, listeners, we'll be back next week. We will have that conversation on the developing world and energy usage because the figures are pretty staggering, I can tell you. Uh, and uh, well, that'll be kicking us off or won't be leading us off, but we will have that as an advanced discussion. We've hope, we hope you've enjoyed what we've discussed today. And, uh, and we look forward to catching up with you again next week. See you, listeners. Bye.